0: hello and welcome to let's pod this my name is andy moore and i'm here uh with bailey perkins hello hello arthur over scott melson hello sir what's up y'all how are you guys it's friday
1: it's Memorial Day weekend, so no complaints over this one.
0: What are holidays anymore, right? There's just additional days that we move between the same two rooms in our house than we are <laughs> the rest of the week. Hi, man. I am
2: 100% ready for the three-day weekend.
0: Well, that's true. Scott, you have a you have a job outside the home, um, and we thank you for your service in yes. the front lines <laughs> of, of medical care. Um, so we... You know, I think I, I wanted to start today by um, acknowledging that this morning, Senator Allison Eichley Freeman um, from Tulsa, on her way to the Capitol from Tulsa, was involved in a collision. seems like it's pretty bad. Um, she is at OU Medical Center. Um, the other motorist that was involved in the collision um, uh, died at the scene, it sounds like. And so on behalf of the podcast, and, and let's fix this, our our sincere thoughts and prayers are with Senator Freeman. With the other drivers' family, uh, with uh, with all their families, that is, it was a a surreal and tough start to a very busy legislative day today. Absolutely. All right, so man, where to start with what happened this week? Um, they the legislature never fails to really pack in just everything in the last few days of session, right? Um, Scott, I know you were in clinic today. I just kept
2: texting you, like, ah, ah "Oh my god!" It's <laughs> um, was like, you know, it's it's even on even on years when there's a global pandemic and you think there's not going to be that much for them to do, uh, it still ends up being crazy time. They find a way. Um, yeah. So today they
0: officially ended, or you know, adjourned. Sunny die. die. For both the regular session and the special session, the special session, part of that was coming back to say that CHIPA, the Emergency Health Emergency Act thing that we've talked about a lot on the show, will officially end May 30th, Um, and they have no intent at this time to renew that, so no additional powers for the governor um, after next Saturday. Do you, do you guys think that means that Governor Stitt will also be ending his emergency declaration or his like state of emergency declaration in the near future?
1: Well, I hope it doesn't mean that um, because I think that would make a bad signal to the public that everything's good, coronavirus is over as Scott always jokes around. Um, And so I think it's necessary for him to maintain um, that power until we have more certainty about what's going on. Cause I mean, a lot of experts expect a second wave to hit. And so, especially as we're um, opening up everything, uh, President Trump made a comment of wanting the churches to open right now. Um, And so as more people go back to um, interacting with one another, um, the governor has to be prepared to act should more cases spike in the future.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, go ahead, Scott. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I I, I honestly don't know what to expect from the governor in terms of like what this does or or doesn't mean for the state of emergency, because on the one hand, you know, there are there are uh, 70 new cases announced today in Oklahoma County alone. Today is the biggest one-day spiking cases um, since April the fourth. We had our uh, 25% increase in hospitalizations over one day earlier this week. Um, now it's it bears repeating, and this is something that's um, this is important to remember. Those things in isolation don't mean that we're seeing a second spike or a second surge. Those are just two data points that happened to happen this week. But I think it is clear that those don't support the idea that like we're done, you know, or that we're continuing to see this like steep decline. And so I think on the one hand for the governor to end his emergency declaration, I agree with you, Bailey would be a bit, would be, would be premature. But on the other hand, um, if, if you're the governor and it's kind of like open up, move on to phase three, like we're, we're meeting the, the gates that the, that the white house has set out, even if we're not totally meeting them in actuality, what is the justification if you're the governor to keep the state of emergency in place? Like, that's my, right. Like, that's my question is, I don't, I don't feel like the public health emergency is over, but I also feel like everybody really wants to say it's over. So like, how do you, how do you, how do you walk that line? And I I don't know the answer. That's tough. Cause yeah, I mean, we
0: all, we all want it to be over, but just because we want it doesn't mean it is. Right. And that is, I mean, I, you know, I was listening to a Five Thirty Eight politics podcast and they were talking about the same thing, right? That it's nice outside. People want to go outside. It's really tough. Um, you know, for Oklahoma, arguably it'll be easier for us to respond to the pandemic in two months when it's one hundred and five degrees outside and nobody wants to go outside. Um, so we'll see what happens. Related to that, also today, it was a really, it was just a busy day. Um, this morning, Governor Stitt named Colonel Lance Fry, um, who's a medical doctor. He is the, uh, currently the um, chief like flight surgeon for the Air National Guard. Um, He's the new interim commissioner for the Department of Health. Gary Cox, who has been the commissioner for a while, or interim commissioner, as listeners uh, may remember, has was not confirmed by the Senate a few weeks ago. Um, Senator McCourtney said the votes weren't there owing to Gary Cox's lack of the academic credentials required in statute, uh, and because he is a an attorney, I think, and while he has worked in public health for a long, long time, he didn't have that degree. Yeah, that uh, reg-
2: you have to requires a graduate degree in public health or medicine, right?
0: Right, yeah. And so obviously, Colonel uh, Fry does medical doctor for 20 plus years. And according
1: um, to Carmen Foreman in the Oklahoman, she mentioned that uh, he's in OBGYN by training. Yeah. So
2: interesting. And I believe he's, I think he's the head of the obstetrics and gynecology gynecology residency at the Health Science Center at OSU, I think. Um, so he's yeah, in, yeah. So he is, he is, and he's a clinician, but he is also an, an academic clinician. Yeah, and a practitioner, which is, I mean, and
0: honestly, that is a good skill set. Maybe it's not as directly applicable to a pandemic. However, Oklahoma is one of the states with the highest teen pregnancy rate in the country and high STD rates. So these are skill sets that are uh, relevant. Yeah. All right. Um, So shortly after that announcement... Um, the Oklahoma Employment Securities Commission or Security Commission, which is the agency that handles unemployment. Right. So we'll say, I will say the unemployment office for ease that, so most of us know what it is. Right. Right. Um, They do other things, but that's kind of the the big thing. They um, had a meeting this morning with an executive uh, session and they were going to vote on, and I honestly don't know what the outcome was, you guys might, about consolidating their IT practices and their business practices with the um, Office of Management and Enterprise Services. Do you guys know what they decided to do with that?
1: I don't know the outcome.
2: I, I hadn't seen the outcome yet, but even without even without knowing the outcome, I think that it is, <laughs> it is worth mentioning. Okay, people bitch about OMES like all the time. Like they talk about getting rid of it. They talk about whether or not they should have even done it in the first place. Like whether they're whether they function well at their job of like consolidating IT and whatnot. And like apparently the situation at OESC and their technology is so bad that right. they were like, you know what? Maybe maybe we should talk about just giving it to OMS. Right. So
0: that, <laughs> it made me think of like there was like three things that I thought were a little ironic about this. One is um, that this is maybe another example of a, yet another state agency that is crippled by poor or outdated IT infrastructure, yeah. right? Like yeah. you can't
2: run a government that's functioning on Windows XP, right? right. Um, Somehow then, the tag agencies make it work on DOS. I don't really know how, but they yes, fascinating. They seem stuff, to get right? by. It's you know rock solid. Um, <laughs> if you have a
0: very specific purpose, like you keep it simple, right? Um, but it's that so conundrum,
1: yeah. though. So right. people, you know, want government to function, but we don't want to invest the things that help government function. So <laughs> right,
0: right, right. So I mean, OMES, as Scott said, was created for this purpose. Right. The yeah. idea was to consolidate all of the administrative and IT services for all the state agencies into one agency, so it's all there. Um, But um, not every agency has gotten on board with that, as we've seen repeatedly, right? Um, In fact, I think the Department of Health just did in the last few years. Um, But yeah, also, if memory serves, didn't Governor Stitt like run on or talk about doing away with OMS like last
2: year or the year before or this year? I think the governor did, but a, a bunch of other people have too. Like that's why I said this has been, this is so, this is ir- ironic and kind of funny. It's like the OESC is like, man, we need, we need to get out of the IT business and just give it to OMES. And it's like, are they going to be around? And right. a lot of people, right. A lot of people feel like they are not very good at it. And again, I, there's very nice people at OMES. I'm not like blaming them for this. I think they're under-resourced. I think I there's think a whole number of problems why that agency hasn't been as successful. I too think it's a great idea to have like the entire state government operate under one tech umbrella, right? Like everybody's using the same programs. They talk to each other. Like like I, I think it sounds good, but it's, it's, it's really it's hard to do in practice and it costs a lot of money. Yeah. Yes, really tough to get there,
0: right? Like that's the that's the hard part. The, the front end costs
1: and, are there, but over time you'll see efficiencies. But we got to get to that first threshold of making that investment first. And I don't know if we're willing to do that.
2: Bailey, right. you're you're asking the legislature to think that if they spend a billion dollars now, they might save three billion dollars over the next 10 years, but they never get to that save three billion dollars part because you can't get past the spend a billion dollars now. Right. And I don't know, I made it and I have no idea how much it costs. It's probably not a billion dollars, but it's a lot of money, right? No, like- but
0: <laughs> but also these are enormous agencies, right? And so if you want to think of them as companies, sometimes it is, it is difficult, right? So if the health department needs something that is specific, right, but it is not, it doesn't work, then it's hard to get another entity who is also big and sluggish to move to make it happen. For example... Yeah. Um, in my experience, running the HIV program at the university, which is not technically a state agency and thus not under OMES, we had a database that we needed to, for our HIV patients that we needed to share with the state. But because their IT security people were different than our IT security people, we couldn't get it to work. And so we had to do this like export, send, import data thing, and it made the whole process much more cumbersome. Yeah. Um, but it just wasn't an option. So there's I guess this the answer is there's
2: no good answer, right? Yeah. It is interesting though. I mean not to like dwell on this, but like it is it is possible for this to work and work like like the the VA is a great example, right? The VA operates multiple hospitals in all 50 states and employs hundreds of thousands of people. And they have this network of computer systems that can pull data. Like when you're seeing it, like if, when I was a resident seeing patients at the, at the VA and I and they got maybe an EKG, right? Uh, so a tracing yeah. of, the ele- uh, of the electrical pattern of their heart, I could look at their EKG and like, man, this, you know, they're not a heart attack, but this looks kind of funny. Have they ever had an EKG before? And I kid you not, I had a guy one time I was seeing that I looked at his EKG and I could go back in the computer and I was able to find a scanned copy of an EKG he had done in like 1992. And it looked exactly the same. It was like, okay, well, it's been doing this for 20 years. So it's probably fine. You know, we don't need to like bring the cardiologist in, in the, in the middle of the night. So it's like, if like government can do these kinds of things and do it well, it just takes a lot of investment. That's all.
0: Yeah. That's reasonable. <laughs> um, Related to OESC, this afternoon, just a little while ago, news broke. I don't know if you guys had a chance to see this, but uh, Robin Roberson, who is Uh the executive director, stepped down. She was just hired in January, I guess, um, before all this COVID mess started. Um, I don't know much about her. She's got some kind of background in IT and I think was brought in because of their issues over there. Um, Obviously not enough time to really put anything in place when the epidemic started, you know, just like a few absolutely. weeks later. Yeah. Um,
1: she inherited a really tough situation.
0: Yeah. And she said in her interview with the Oklahoman, which I think listeners should read, it was interesting um, that she had five calls yesterday asking her to step down. Um, and so it's like, Oh, okay. Um, well, this was really
1: an administrative leave, like a taking an extended leave. And yeah. She, she wasn't interested in doing that.
0: Right. which, I get <laughs> it. seems to make a lot of sense.
1: Yeah.
0: All right. Well, so that was all um, before like 1030 this morning, with exception of uh, of Ms. Robertson stepping down.
1: Well, and uh, Andy, and while we're on the topic of um, OESC is really interesting. Congresswoman Horn did an unemployment assistance survey among constituents and had some really interesting figures of like how people were able to Engage with the agency. Um, And one of the questions, for example, said, if you had applied or attempted to apply to receive unemployment through OESC since February 1st, how would you rate your experience with the application process? And 78% of respondents said negative. And so a lot of the feedback was, you know, people still haven't been able to get in touch with somebody, Um, they've had negative experiences. 42% Said, you know, they weren't able to complete their application due to the problems within the system. And so, um, COVID has really um, put pressure on an agency that was already understaffed, underfunded, um, that didn't have the tools that it needed for a moment like this. And so, it was just really interesting to see that information that uh, Congresswoman Horn collected play into probably why. They're looking for change and different leadership into the agency. But like we noted, it shouldn't be blamed on just the, the new executive director. This is something tough that the agency wasn't structurally prepared for.
0: Right. Yeah. I am. Um, yeah, that's a really good. Good answer there. Um, man. All right. So are we up to all the bills and the vetoes now? Is that the next?
1: Uh, yeah, I, let's get into it. <laughs> There's a whole lot uh, to talk about.
0: So. Yeah. So the governor had a very busy week. Um, you know, the, as is always the case, the legislature at the end of the session, like sends a bunch of bills over, right. It's always in the last few days. And so um, it looks like this year, and I think the website's still updating, but as of a few minutes ago, he had, um signed 134-ish bills. Um and I do want to mention that uh, a bill we mentioned last week, the cost of living increase for retired state employees was one of those bills. That's the the first one in 12 years, Bailey. Yes. So that's well, it's been
1: a long time coming for many um state retirees to see that that bump in in their pension.
0: Right, right. And it's not like it's a huge bump, right? But the cost of living has gone up in the past 12 years. And so they we have to help
2: support them. I, th- I think it also bears mentioning, too, just because uh, we, and by we, I mean I, all of us, but mostly I ranted and raved about this last week. That some of the bills that we we were most concerned about uh, did not make it all the way, did not make it all the way through. Um, so the vac, there was a change to vaccination rules that I don't think made it all the way through. Or, well, I should say the legislature wanted to block the rule change, and they were they did not they were not able to do that. So the recommended change in rules that the health department propagated. Will go through as part of the omnibus rules package, so that's good news. Um, then, yeah. uh, as an, another one was that uh, the local control bill that would require mayors to ask the governor's permission before declaring a health emergency that also did not get through the Senate, I think. So that did not go to the governor's desk. And then finally, um, the bill that would have the bill that would have capped Bailey did the did the housing did the housing bill. It he vetoed it. Yeah, he vetoed it, right? Yeah, yep. So, so uh, that's so it would
1: have lowered the cap of the right. um, affordable housing credit. So.
2: And then they did not, they did not increase the cap on the education opportunity scholarship fund, right? Like that didn't go through either, did they? I
1: didn't see any movement on that.
2: Okay, yeah. so perfect. That's <laughs> all <laughs> the yeah. you
1: talked about before. That's where <laughs> they are. <laughs> well,
0: and so I've compiled. I don't think. I think I'm still missing a few, but I'll put all of these into the show notes for the podcast. Um, and if you are watching this on um, Facebook or YouTube, on our YouTube channel, I try to put all this stuff in, those, uh, in the description as well. So please go down and check that out. Um, so a, there were a bunch of bills that the governor vetoed, and then a bunch of those that got overridden, right? Um, some we talked about last week. Um, related to the budget and then others this week about a whole bunch of other stuff. So I'm going to kind of go through some of these and we can probably pop on and discuss whichever ones, they're not all worthy of discussion, in my opinion. Um, Or we just don't
1: have time to discuss them all, frankly. That's
0: true. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) One one that I think is interesting is, uh, or was Senate bill 1703, which would have created a sales tax exemption for the university hospitals trust. So in Oklahoma, just because you're a nonprofit doesn't mean that you are exempt from sales tax. You have to get a special exemption. It's like a case-by-case deal. Um, this would have been about an eleven million dollar per year, I think, savings for uh, basically for OU um, hospital system. Yeah. Uh, and that obviously, if they're saving that money, that it's taxes that they pay, uh, sales taxes they pay, then that means it doesn't go to the state into the general revenue fund. So it's, you know, money is fungible to some extent. Um, and in Stitt's, um, it was going to be used to fund additional residency slots at the teaching hospital in governor Stitt's veto message. He said, the state needs that money and there's, you know, no requirement that they spend it on what they're going to say they're going to spend it on basically. Um, which was true. And I think this is a funny thing that will come to another bill for for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the legislature is always like, we're going to spend this money on this thing. Um, But it's so often they supplant that money with something else. And just, we spent this money on this and then we took the other money and spent it on something else instead. So, uh, so there was that. There was house bill 27.
1: Like before we move on on that, it's, it's really interesting because, I mean, $11 million is a drop in the budget. And yeah. so... Um, yeah, for the
0: state budget, that's, I mean... $6 nearly $9 billion, yeah. yeah.
1: So it's it's really interesting that um, that decision was made to not, not fill those important residency slots that we need. So
0: Well, but the legislature has been cutting higher ed budget, and I think this is all kind of related, right, for years. Yeah. And so that OU while we think of it as a public institution, their, the portion of their budget that they receive from the state is I think less than 20% for sure, maybe less than 15. Yeah. And so they are just barely, uh, you know, they're a they're a private institution who happens to receive some public dollars at
1: this few, point. Yeah, a few dollars from the state. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. Um, so we mentioned the affordable housing tax credit and the um, private vocational school rule change things, those, Um, got vetoed and were not overheard. Um, House Bill 3663, which would change tag agencies' employment relationship from the state from being at-will employers to just cause, so essentially uh, employment protection for tag agencies. Um, Governor Stitt said he didn't believe they needed any additional protection, vetoed that, and the
2: legislature did not override it. Y'all know how many tag agents we get rid of in Oklahoma every year? None. Less than one. It's not zero. It's a, like it happens sometimes, but the moving average is like less than one.
0: How, do we add
2: more each year than two? Not necessarily. I mean, it just depends. So apparently I learned this this week. Every county is required to have a tag agency. And if the county doesn't have a tag agency, then the tax commission is supposed to act as one. But sometimes the tax commissions don't want to. Um, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. But no, tag agents are uh, at will, they're at will and can be anyway, so. Interesting. Um, so then
0: House Bill, let's see. Oh, this is a big one that um, I think we should have another episode on. Thirty-eight House Bill 3828 is gonna make a bunch of changes to medical marijuana, right? And I think this was requested at least in part by the Medical Marijuana Association. Yes,
2: did they not override this? I thought the, I no. thought they were gonna override this. this no, a- you know,
0: yeah, Getter said he wanted he called for it to be overridden. I mean he didn't call for it on the floor, but um yesterday he was talking about it and they didn't
2: uh I mean this 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 changes like this would change like whether or not they can deliver it would have uh, made a 90-day license that can be renewed a thing um it like it was sub- it was a substantial bill that was negotiated between the medical marijuana authority and the industry and everybody was like on the same page and then they passed it and then the governor was like nah i'm good yeah yeah um <laughs> it was I, mean, I think we'll hear a lot more about that soon. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just surprised. Cause I would have thought like that one in particular, I would have thought they were going to override today. Well, and it passed the house 90 to six and passed the Senate 38
0: to five. Like it was, they had veto proof majorities there and they just chose not to go back. So, um,
1: well, speaking of vetoes, other, we should definitely talk about the Medicaid expansion funding.
0: <laughs> um, so, that's, I've got two left on this little okay. list, and we'll get to that. Well, that's one of them. So, House Bill 3824 exempted the legislature and state judicial entities from fees and costs for services rendered by appropriated state agencies. So, basically, this bill would have said that the legislature and maybe the judiciary doesn't have to pay the same fees for like services from. OMES or some other state agency, um, that that the normal interagency things happen. And this is a an odd deal to me. Anyway, right? This is like it's like two divisions of the same company paying fees to one another for their services, right? So, like if you I don't know, like um, Alphabet, right? That's Google's overarching company, and so if if Ways like their traffic app division wants to use Gmail, do they have to pay for Gmail, like out of their budget, or does it all... Right. And it's a way to like transfer costs within the company, and so that's the way it is within the government too. Um, and so right now, if if DHS needs something from the Department of Health, they may have to pay some kind of fee. And the legislature was like, oh, we don't want to pay the fee. And the governor said, uh, this is just shifting costs from one agency to another, and while other state agencies have to pay it, it's not fair for you to be exempted from that,
2: which... That makes Fair sense. Enough. Yeah,
0: I was like, "Was this the legislature trying to save money at the expense of taxpayers?" That seems unfair. So, there's that. Um, and then the last one on this part of the list, Bailey, is Senate Bill 1046, yeah. which would increase so
1: everyone everybody. for a
0: loop. So yeah. <laughs> uh, so this was, you know, last last night, late into the night, the governor was signing bills, doing little Facebook videos, and uh, and vetoing some of these. I don't think he did Facebook videos for vetoes, but he, this was the um, increase in the hospital fee um, that would raise $134 million to basically pay for Medicaid expansion. Whichever version of Medicaid expansion makes it across the finish line, right? So yeah. whether it's the governor's sooner care 2.0 or it's State Question 802, like at the ballot, and um so the governor started this year talking about Medicaid expansion Medicaid 2.0 or soonercare 2.0 and here's my plan for it and they the legislature passed it and agreed to expanding Medicaid, which is still a little bananas given how much they've pushed back against it. And then the legislature passed a bill to fund it and the governor said, no never mind in his veto message, uh, I don't have it pulled up, but it's super weird, right? Like where he's like Oklahoma's need healthcare and we're going to give them healthcare and you know, we're going to have a plan to do it.
1: Well, and one a- of the arguments was that it doesn't fund it through its entirety. It just funds it through the first year. And so he yeah. wanted something that was going to be um, more sustainable over time to fund that state share portion.
0: Do you think but- that's really what it is though?
2: Oh, but is a- this
1: now the time to have that conversation at the the sign in the law or veto table, right?
2: So I've got, here's, here's what he said. So he said, I appreciate the willingness of the legislature to craft a proposal to fund Senior Care 2.0. When I announced Senior Care 2.0, unemployment rates were at 3.2%. Due to the current COVID-19 pandemic and uncertainty within energy markets and commodity prices, unemployment rates are predicted to be as high as 14%. I would throw out there, they're actually predicted to be as high as 20, 25%, but that's neither here nor there. Um, this will not only increase the number of individuals currently enrolled in Medicaid, but will also increase the number of potential enrollees in the expanded population. Um, and he said, you know, the other thing is that SB 1046 does not fully fund sooner care in year one, and it does not consider, does not consider funding for year two. We must work together to design a healthcare system that's both affordable and sustainable and that addresses the unique needs of Oklahoma while improving health outcomes. Now uh, from the day one, I've said one-time funds are not the way to pay for Medicaid expansion. I will always protect the taxpayer and I will not sign unfunded mandates in the mid- middle of a massive budget deficit. So, um, you know, I, I honestly, this is probably not a popular opinion. I'm going to say it's probably an unpopular opinion. I have mixed feelings about this. Um, On the one hand, I'm 100% in favor of expanding Medicaid to the largest extent possible. I think that's something we should have done 10 years ago. We certainly need to do it now. Um, And I think that doing this – I think that doing this is what – I think that that SB 1046 is is probably what we should do. Um, But that's not to say that here the governor's points are entirely without merit, right? Like – Like, like, I, you know what I mean? Like, I think that I, I I wish you'd sign the bill, um, because I think the sooner we can get, uh, healthcare expanded, especially, I mean, I shouldn't say especially to, to everyone who needs it, you know, I mean, people are being devastated right now. I think that, uh, you know, we talk a lot about how much rural healthcare and rural clinics and hospitals have been devastated. And that is certainly true now, even more than it has been in the past um but people are hurting in in our cities too so i think that the sooner we can get healthcare passed the better but i also think that the governor is right that like one because of a lot of things that are out of our control this bill wasn't going to be enough to do it right and it doesn't address what comes next now the and the other thing the other thing about this is that this is funded by are raising a fee that hospitals pay, but rural hospitals are exempt. So it'd be mostly urban hospitals that would be paying this fee for this $134 million. Um, and hospitals all over the state, all over the US, wherever they are, hospitals are hurting right now. Like they, like hospitals are in feeling incredible financial pain right now. So, you know, I'm sure if this had passed, they would come up with the money somewhere. But, you know, that's another reason that this. Is a little bit more nuanced than just like, oh, we should do this to to fix healthcare. I think it's probably the right thing to do. Um, uh, and I, you know, I wish that he'd signed it so we could be further on down the road. But I read the governor's statement, and you know, in somewhat out of character for me, having read his statement, I wasn't like, garbage. <laughs> like, <laughs> well,
1: but it leaves a lot of questions unanswered, especially for many health advocates who are following this. Um, there are folks asking what happens now yeah. with your July 1st marker for totally. starting Medicaid expansion this year in the state. Completely so now that we don't have budget. a funding mechanism, like yeah. what does that look like? Do you still carry on with SoonerCare 2.0 and the submission of the CMS waivers? The CMS say, oh, you don't have a funding mechanism now, so we're going to reject it. Like, what does all of this mean in terms of uh, the governor's plans to expand Medicaid now that we don't have this this funding mechanism?
2: And that doesn't even touch on 802, right? Because 802 just says expand Medicaid. It doesn't have a funding mechanism, right? So,
1: Well, and it, it starts 2021. Yeah. So this would give the legislature, regardless of like the the governor's plan, if state question 802 passes, it gives the legislature this next session to put in a funding mechanism. And so um, just, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting that this was vetoed for his Medicaid expansion plan. And what does it look like for his plan going forward and its ability to be implemented in 2020?
2: The other thing that's interesting is that he vetoed SB 1046 because that provided 134 million for Medicaid expansion. The total cost of expansion was estimated to be 164 million. So there's another bill SB 1935 that authorized using 30 million bucks from the revenue stabilization fund to make up the difference. So he signed that one. So he signed the bill for money. that's one-time funds going from revenue stabilization for 30 million but he didn't sign the one for 134 million. This it's one time funds from this fee increase. So it's a little, it's, it it's, it's a little bit incongruent. Yes,
0: that's a good word. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that was the the deal for me, like in watching it, was that it definitely seemed like, or reading it, it definitely seemed like his strategy changed midstream. And then in it, and so when he, Put that veto out, everyone was like, Well, this this is weird. And then, you know, it's a political talking point, so it's not like a real message of like, you know what, after looking at this again, I should have vetoed the other one, but I'll veto this one and here we are. So what a weird mess. And and so still we have unanswered questions about the future of healthcare in Oklahoma.
2: Yeah. I'm shocked. Right. Shocked, I say, shocked. to find that there is that there's gambling taking place in this establishment.
0: Scott sends me that GIF once a day, probably. All right, so in addition to all of those vetoes um, that went through and were not overridden by the legislature, there were six bills that were overridden um, today by both chambers. It went through pretty quick. Um, Most of them had veto-proof majorities in the first place, uh, and so As he vetoed bills last night, you know, they they put out their agenda like around eleven or twelve um last night and said, Okay, here we come. And this is in addition to the four bills that he had his vetoes overwritten last week, right? Right. So that's ten altogether. So And that's
1: very rare. Um you may see one or two within a legislative session, but not several. So this This is very unique.
0: Right? Yeah, I'm Several people have asked, and so I'm curious to, to find out. Um,
1: Especially within the same party. So, right. you have, it,
2: you, government control with one, with one party. It's crazy.
0: Right, that they can't get on the same page. So, House Bill 2749 and 2750 uh, worked in conjunction to authorize a $161 million bond package to um, fund the state's matching obligation for endowed shares. And it says it like basically caps the state's funding on endowed chairs. The way the legislature talked about it, um, I'm a little confused. I need to go read it again because Stitt's veto said, he's like, I'm vetoing this because I don't think we should fund endowed chairs at all.
1: At all, yeah.
0: And the legislature said today, that's what this bill does, is basically it gets us out of the endowed chair business Um.
1: Well, but they also mentioned like they don't have a say in which chairs get endowed. So that was their issue right. too. Right. is like they they wanted to say, we're going to endow the business chair, but not women in gender studies. like <laughs> yeah. like it's it's I think also a um, a very political jab at higher ed because people. View higher ed as um, an incubator for ideological ideas instead of a place of, you know, developing critical thinkers and, and all that kind of stuff, or, you know, building the next job. So I think there's just biases even towards higher education that goes into play about why they want to get out of the endowed chair business.
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. So that went through um, pretty quick. I mean, they more than ninety in the House and you know forty four in the Senate voted for that. So that went through pretty easily. Um, for anyone who didn't watch debate on these today, it was interesting because there was there was a lot of shade being thrown at the governor, um, also on Twitter from members of his own party again. Um, but even today, they were like, yeah, there was a lot of. Factual inaccuracies in the governor's statement, um, and they were kind of like, "Ha ha!" You know, slapping each other on the back of like, "That's a good one," and real some real zingers, and it was a kind of a bizarre scene. Um, House Bill thirty eight nineteen would make any contract from a state agency in, open to inspection by any member of the legislature, and. Um, also, banned any agency from prohibiting an employee from talking to the legislature. So, this is a, I think, after a couple of years, um, we've seen this trend of like the legislature wanting more access and oversight over agencies and more involvement, right? Just like uh, last session, the big deal was about the, the Board of Regents for higher ed and that, that any legislator should be allowed to attend and sit in on the executive sessions of those that are not normally open to the public. Um, so this bill passed the House 94 to 1 and the Senate uh, unanimously. Uh, Stitt said the measure is duplicative and um, detailed some concern about how confidential information would not be protected and observed the legislature did not make its own contracts or employees open to inspection,
2: which is true. There's no, I, uh, there's yeah. There's, there's no good guy in this fight. Mm. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> I mean, I think this is the legislature
0: saying, we want more oversight over agencies. And I think this is the governor saying, back off. The agencies are mine. Like, you write the laws, but I run the agencies. Because he's kind of had that
2: rhetoric the last few weeks. right?
1: Well, and the legislature's given him some of that power. So it is kind yeah. of confusion and mixed messaging. Well,
2: And this is like a, you know, confidential, confidential information. Like when I tell my agency head stuff that I don't want the legislature to know about that, you know, like, it's just, I don't know. It's, I, I mean, fine. He, you know, they passed it fine. He vetoed it fine. They overrode it fine. Like this to me is, it's a, uh, it's a contest about uh, who can get their pee farther over the line. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs)
0: Um, So that um, also passed again on about the same margins, almost everybody, both parties voted for it. um, Because it gives the legislature more authority. So why wouldn't they vote for it? Uh, House Bill 4018 4018 um, was related to the Rural Broadband Expansion Council. Um, And so Stit obviously vetoed this and said, Well, this is part of my digital transformation plan. And there was another bill related to that, um, two other bills, House Bill 4049 and Senate Bill-
1: Was that the speaker's bill?
0: One, I don't remember, I didn't write down the authors. Oh, okay. Okay. But there was, um, so, well, okay, Forty House Bill 4018 and Senate Bill 1002 were like trailer bills, both related to rural broadband expansion. Um, and they both passed, I think both chambers unanimously or nearly unanimously the first time around and they did with the veto override um and this goes back to the budget fight right where the governor was saying like you know i'm in charge of digital transformation and that whole deal with that little bit of money for this that became like a big issue um and why he allegedly you know vetoed the budget or pushed back and so i you know like uh growing up i used to watch wrestling like wwf or i guess now it's wwe but back yeah then, mm-hmm. and uh in that you would see you know someone would like hurt their elbow i'm doing air quotes here but <laughs> hurt their elbow and then the other guy would like just hammer away at that elbow and i feel like in this wrestling match of our legislature then it was like the legislature figured out that digital transformation is the governor's elbow and they're just hammering away at it, like, however they can, because they know that, like, it probably doesn't matter in the grand scheme, but it really drives him nuts. And it's yes. like, it's <laughs> a king of the hill, a little fighting over a little thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, because I think that connects to that tension, particularly, particularly, if I can get the words out, uh, between the governor and the speaker. So, because we've seen a lot of tension among, not necessarily the legislature as a whole, but even among leadership and um, the governor. So that's been an interesting, and that that analogy too is is fitting in this, that there's this kind of back and forth kind of ping pong one-upping, so.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's real, uh, real interesting. And then the last one I had on my list for us to talk about was, and this is the last override, is House Bill 4049 that dealt with fees and how it relates to the online motor vehicle registration system. Um, I think now, and I've talked to some insiders about this, when you go to renew your car tag, like you can go to a tag agency or you can go online, yeah. If you go online, there's a list of all the tag agencies in the state. You can pick whichever one you want. And it also lists the Oklahoma Tax Commission. So you can circumvent tag agencies and just pay your tag straight to the state, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, tag agencies, I, they are job creators. They employ people, but they're also kind of an institutional monopoly in the same way that like electric companies are, right? Like the state uses them everyone I know who owns a tag agency or affiliated with one, I guess that owns it. Um, it's a pretty lucrative deal, right? Because all of your fees are set by the government, including your profit margin. And like your guaranteed business, as Scott said earlier, you're guaranteed to have one in every County. Yeah. And Everybody's so,
1: got to get that tag. So Yeah.
0: So given an option to circumvent them, um, obviously tag agents don't like that. And I'm, guessing, right? It's a, they've got a powerful lobby. Um, And I could see them pushing to say, hey, listen, can you get the tax commission like off that list or put them farther down the list or something so that there's a better chance that people will pick me, right? And I would also expect that like, I think it's an alphabetical order or something. So whoever is, you know, AAA tax uh, or a tag agency is probably the first one and they might get a disproportionate share of uh, of revenue from this. So okay. the online system is real real funny to me, but it was, uh, again, this had one of the lower margins and that's not saying much. It was like 89 to seven for the veto override. Um, and Stitt's veto for this said, it hampers digital transformation um, and because he believes in a future someday where all Oklahomans will access all state services through a mobile app, which is obviously not the near future, right? Like we still don't even have real ID. Uh, and so that the idea that-
1: <laughs> And the deadline's still ticking. So, cause that one has a real deadline, so.
0: Yeah, yeah. So given all of this stuff, right? So we went through a bunch of bills um, and sorry for listeners that was in the weeds to some degree. Hey man, that's why they listen to this show. Well, we hope one can hope. Um, um, let's talk about this, like pull back to the thirty thousand feet, right? That this relationship between the legislature and the governor, and in fact, just in the last few days, I think Nondoc had articles about. He definitely had one about Treat and the governor. Maybe the Oklahoma had one about Speaker McCall and the governor, right? That there was the kind of end of session thing that they they had words or they worked it out or whatever it was it made it clear that like those relationships with the leadership the the house and senate leadership and the governor have soured a bit they're strained. strained yes strained but the governor has gone out of his way i think on several occasions to say i've got many friends in the legislature we get along great and in one of the interviews he said
2: maybe not the leaders, but a bunch of the rank and file members were cool. Which is, which is, which is, you know, great, except it turns out that nothing gets heard on the floor of the house, unless the speaker and the majority leader, the floor leader uh, decide they want it on the floor. Right. Like that doesn't happen. And the pro team
1: on the Senate side. Right.
2: Like it doesn't matter. So, I think it is commendable for the governor to try and have good working relationships with rank and file members of the legislature. Um, But if he doesn't have good working relationships with leadership, he's going to have a hard time having his agenda get passed. Yeah.
0: Um, So what do you think this means moving forward, right? What does this look like for the rest of this year going into next year? Um, How does this change the dynamic inside the Capitol?
2: got a hot take. Most happy. You know, it's, not, it's not going to.
1: <laughs> I mean, it, it may turn into, you know, water under the bridge. I mean, it really just depends on what happens in the next several months um, to see how their relationships will either mend or if there's something that may appear that may force the legislature to have to come back. And I mean, because. Again, we're still in an unprecedented time with COVID. So who knows what may need to happen for the legislature and the governor to have to work together. And so um, I think time will tell.
2: Yeah, the, re- the reason I say it's not going to is because, you know, barring something unexpected at the ballot box in November, um, the Republican caucus will have veto-proof and uh, veto-proof supermajorities on their own, Um in both houses of the legislature. So I think from their standpoint, all they have to do is keep their caucus together and they can do whatever they want. Right. They don't need to work with the governor. They don't need to work with the Dems. They don't need to work with anybody to do whatever they want to do because they hold 76 seats in the house and what, like 35 or something in the Senate. So the house or the legislature, the the Republican caucus has no incentive to work with anybody because they have the Trump card. So to speak, right, right, and that's why. Yeah. I don't think, and I don't think I don't think that is going to change, which is why I don't think the dynamic is going to change. Who has leverage over Speaker McCall? Right, right. Who, who has maybe Treat? Right. Who has leverage over Treat? Maybe McCall. No, but I mean, I think years past, their dynamic indicates that that's not the case, right? right. Like, that's what I'm saying, though, right? Is that like as long as as long as Senator Treat and Speaker McCall are on the same page, then like they can do whatever they want to. They're
1: a powerful force. Yeah. The legislature. That makes sense.
2: Yes,
0: definitely. And I think, I think in some ways um, we should be cautious, right? Like I'm, I'm, this is maybe it's one man's opinion, but this session in the last few weeks, we saw the legislature argue that there are three co-equal branches of government, Right. And yes, they did things within their authority. But when you have such large super majorities of either of any party, right? Like you run the risk of, of this happening where the judicial branch made a ruling and the next day the legislature overruled them where the legislature passed bills and the governor vetoed them and they came back and overrode those vetoes. And so they kind of set a precedent of like, we can, they Flexed, right? Like they were yeah. showing
2: what their power is, and
1: if this is the agenda that we have set, we will see it through. Yeah,
2: right, right, and, and and there are three co-equal branches of government, right? But I think the answer is like, if you want, if you want those other branches to be a check on the legislature, then you, you got to vote, right? You got like you got to vote for you got to vote and you got to vote for different people, right? Um, right, like i mean that's just like yeah and you
0: know arguably there are things that you know they as i said like they worked within their power there and they just flex to remind us the people how broad the government's power might be and i think you know we see um how broad the people's power is too right like next month we'll vote on state question 802 which is an initiative petition to amend the constitution. Um, You know, we have the ability to do for now. Right. Right.
2: Um, (laughs) Pending a constitutional convention.
0: (laughs) Well, and that bill didn't go anywhere. So there's that. Yeah. Hopefully. Um, But I think, you know, I barring. Oh, speaking of which Scott, I'm glad you brought that up. I was going to tell you, this is why I was going to call you the other night. Um, So in state history, we had talked about state constitutional conventions previously, did some research, since the statehood a hundred and whatever years ago the while our state constitution says that they're supposed to have a convention every 20 years um, they've only tried to call one three times one was 20 years in and then one was 20 years after that and then it was like 30 or 40 years later or something and they tried it again in order to call a convention it has to go to a vote of the people for the people to authorize the convention and then whatever they would pass would then have to be ratified as well. Well, each time the legislature tried to call a convention, the people definitely did not want one. I mean, it was like forty-nine thousand yes to like three hundred fifty thousand no. Like it was a, That's a, that
1: populist route. Yeah,
0: like like, the homie they were like, said,
1: don't no. don't muddle with my constitution.
0: Right. We do We put it in there. We just don't really want to use it. Um, and and then there was a couple of times that
2: people tried to call one, and those never even made it to the ballot. Like they got
0: abandoned along the
2: way. So the the governor think that he has the ability to call one without, like, doesn't he think he just can,
0: I could see governor Stitt thinking something like that. Right. Like um, just because he is someone who is testing the power of the executive branch. Um, I, in my read of the constitution and I'm no legal scholar, but it seems like that's
2: not the case. Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> but
1: this is a random thing I did want to bring up. We are talking about how the governor uh, is doing videos about what he's signing into law, what he's vetoing. doing. I think that's really interesting. And I hope that he continues doing that because in prior years we had written statements and press releases, which I'm sure still exists, but it adds another touch to hear him talk about the rationale for why he's doing what he's doing. And so I think that's a pretty cool thing that I hope sticks around from a civic standpoint.
2: Agreed. Agreed.
0: Yes, I agree. Um, I think it'll be curious. I'm hope, I am hope like Sooner Poll or one of those groups does some polling after session just about popularity just because I'm kind of curious yeah. what the public sentiment is. Like Governor Stitt has been through the ringer this spring, right? Like, this is the second session. Last year was pretty smooth, had plenty of money, had some honeymoon times, right? And then this year, he bumped heads with the legislature, he bumped heads with the AG, he's bumping heads tribes. with the tribes. Like, it's Has a um,
1: whole pandemic on his uh, yeah. radar, yeah. having yeah. to implement CHIPA. Like, it's, it's a whole yeah. lot of unprecedented things that Governor Stitt is that's under his, his realm.
0: Yeah, man. All right. Well, I think that brings us to the end of the episode. Scott, thanks for being here. Hey, man, it's the highlight of my week. I wouldn't
2: miss it. You say that every week, and every week I think you're lying, but I appreciate okay. it. <laughs> we were ask Ashley. Ask Ashley, like, what is what's the thing Scott looks forward most on the week, and she'll say, sitting with Andy and Bailey and having a whiskey and yelling about politics. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I unfortunately, uh, I don't think you plugged CivicsCon yet, but I will I'm not going to be able to make CivicsCon next week I'm very sad about it. Well that's
0: okay. Thanks for the lead in. I'll get to that in a second. But I want to thank Bailey for being here as well.
1: Thank you. Uh, so.
0: Of course. So, yes, uh, as Scott mentioned, next Friday, we will not be doing the podcast. We will be doing CivicsCon, which is a virtual conference or convention about civics, about voting, about elections, about connecting with your neighbor um, and about building a better democracy. You can go to civicscon.com to register. Um, We will be doing that as a live stream online. It's free. We go in from 830 in the morning until a little after four in the afternoon. Um, it should be great, and we will. Once that's done, uh, we'll be releasing the the audio from that as uh, as subsequent podcast episodes. We'll probably do a regular episode week after next to recap whatever we've missed, uh, and then during the summer, um, we'll take uh, uh, several weeks off um, to to regroup ourselves and to let you guys listen to. Uh, what happened at, at CivicsCon? And then all of those videos will be made available on our Facebook page and our YouTube channel. And with that, uh, don't forget to rate and subscribe. Let's pod this on Apple Podcasts if you listen. Um, that would be great. It helps us uh, connect with other people. Um, you can follow Scott. He is at SCMelson. Bailey is at Bailey Perkins. I'm at AndyOKC. Um, don't forget to like our Facebook page. Don't forget to go to CivicsCon. Um, our podcast is produced by the three of us. We are a member of the Mostly Harmless Media Network, which is based right here in Oklahoma City. And our theme music is called Rhino Funk by artist So Down. Let's Fix This as a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization, um, and our whole goal is to help people be educated about civics and be more engaged we believe that uh, the key to a better democracy and a better Oklahoma is having folks like you and I uh, be involved to show up to vote. And with that, a reminder that decisions are made by those who show up. Have a great week.